The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we need to make sure we're in fellowship so you can be ready to concentrate. Trust me, tonight's one of those concentration lessons. So we need to pray that we can concentrate and focus, not get too distracted by whatever else comes along. And we'll open in prayer. Jack, you got? How's it sound? Okay, turn it down a little bit. That's what I thought. It sounds a little high. Sounds a little high. Those of you who shot your forty-fives a little bit too much think it's just right. Okay, that ought to do it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that it illuminates our thinking, tells us what truth is, gives us a framework for being able to evaluate history, for evaluate our own lives, for evaluating our own thinking, problems, situations, enables us to think about life as you have created it, to think about our own lives as you have designed them, and your plan for our life as you direct us towards our future inheritance. Father, we pray that we can understand the things we study this evening as we gain a fresh perspective on these passages. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. A couple of things by just by way of introduction. Well, I have a couple of announcements first. There will be class next Tuesday night. Everybody got that squared away? It's not on the calendar. It says no class, but there will be class. Next Tuesday night. Also, the address for the church has now permanently changed. It is 1500 West Sam Houston Parkway North. You can abbreviate the the West to W and the North, I'm sure, with an N. 1500 West Sam Houston Parkway North, Suite 104, Houston 77043. Also, we have order blanks on the table out there for DVDs. Right now, this is for congregation members only until we get the system worked up and the kinks worked out, and then we will make it available for a broader audience. And then on December the 3rd, on Saturday at 2 p.m., we're going to have a, we're going to put up the Christmas tree and have a Christmas trimming and carol singing uh, party and 
Christmas message, bring the kids. This is kid-oriented. Bring your grandkids, great-grandkids, nephews, kids in the neighborhood. If you don't have kids or grandkids, steal some somewhere. Just find them, borrow them, bring them in. Speaking of children, there's seven things. If you're going to bring kids, you ought to be prepared uh, for the problems that kids can cause. And somebody sent me this today, and I thought it was appropriate. uh, Jack sent it to me today. And I thought it was appropriate to share, have a little humor tonight, because this is one of those lessons that's uh, a real brain burner. A little girl was talking in class to her teacher, talking about whales. And her teacher said it was physically impossible for a whale to swallow a human being because, though it's a large mammal, it has a very small uh, throat. But the little girl said that Jonah was swallowed by a whale. Of course, we know that's not what the Bible says. The Bible just says it was a big fish. But she said it was Jonah was swallowed by a whale. Irritated, the teacher reiterated that a whale cannot swallow a human. It's physically impossible. The little girl said, well, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask Jonah. The teacher said, well, what if, Jonah's not, what if Jonah went to hell? And the little girl quickly responded, well, then you ask him. When I was in seminary, one of the few things one of my homiletics professors said that was pretty accurate, and I like to quote every now and then, is when there's a mist in the pulpit, there's a fog in the pew. But when there's a fog in the pulpit, it gets real cloudy out there, and it just might be one of those cloudy nights. Because we're going to get into a subject that's really difficult, and I've been working my way through this for two or three weeks trying to figure out the best way to deal with this because there are some things here that we're going to learn that are a little bit different perhaps from the way you've learned them in the past. And that's one of the great things I think about studying the Scripture is in each generation, it's not that we change doctrine, just that we learn more, we study more, we come to greater appreciation and understanding of not a lot of things in the Word, and sometimes concepts or the application from certain passages that we've understood in the past uh, may not quite be as accurate as we thought. I remember some years ago now, probably about 10 or 12 years ago, I was sitting in Bible class and Pastor Theme was teaching on 1 Corinthians 13, 13 for the fourth or fifth night in a row. And I had my Greek text out, and I'm following along, and he's just talking about that last verse in 1 Corinthians 13. He's talking about faith. He's really talking about hope as a confident expectation. And I kept looking at that verse, and I noticed in the Greek text that when the translation is, but now continue faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. And we all know that verse, and we've heard it many times. And I kept looking in the Greek text, and I noticed that the now, the word, the Greek word translated now in verse 13, was a different word for now than the word translated two verses earlier in verse 11, which is the verse that is also familiar, but now we see through a mirror dimly, but then face to face. And I scratched my head and I thought, hmm, not paying attention to the lesson. I'm down at my brain's running down a rabbit trail. I know y'all do that. See, that's 
that's the, sort of the beauty of how the Holy Spirit teaches us. I may say one thing now, and you're, you're gone for the rest of the time, but you're thinking in terms of doctrine, so that's okay, I understand. So I went home, and I started doing some study and doing some research on these two different Greek words for now. And when I got done, I went in and uh, talked to Pastor Theme, and I said, you know, it really occurs to me that if you recognize the temporal distinction between these two words for now, that it changes our whole understanding of this verse that the now face-to-face isn't talking about face-to-face with God. It's talking about face-to-face with the mirror of God's Word. And he looked at me and he said, you know, I've always taught it that it was face-to-face with God, but I never liked it. I always had a problem with it, but that's what everybody, you know, that's pretty much the standard interpretation. And he said, but I think that you've solved that conundrum. So that, by way of introduction, is to say that I'm shifting around our understanding of a key concept in chapter 2 and 3, specifically 3.16 and are actually 3.11 and following, which is a key idea that we've that is really entered into the vocabulary that we all use, and it, it it's a true concept, but it's not really doesn't really come out of this passage, and that's the concept of rest in the phrase that we use frequently, the faith rest drill. Is rest what is the rest that we're talking about here in Hebrews? Chapter 3, is this the rest that relates to trusting God and relaxing in His provision? Now, that's a true concept. But is that what the rest in Hebrews 3 and 4 is talking about? So, I've been digging around and scratching around in different studies, coming up with some interesting conclusions. Now, before we get into that, we have to do a little review. When we look at this section, it begins in verse 7. And starting in verse 7, we have our exhortation or warning section that grows out of the didactic section that covered 2.5 down to 3.6. So what is being taught in that section related to sanctification leads the writer of Hebrews to say, Therefore, in light of the role that Jesus Christ plays in the hypostatic union in His humanity... In setting the precedent for our spiritual life, there is a serious, serious warning for us. And in his conclusion, the last paragraph of that didactic section, he compares Jesus to Moses. And out of that, he's going to say, basically, that if, if disobedience to Moses produced such a horrendous consequence for the Jews and jeopardized their Rest. How much more will disobedience to Jesus, who's greater than Moses, jeopardize our rest if we fail to trust Christ just as the Exodus generation failed to trust Christ? Let me say that again. He's compared Jesus and Moses, and he says Jesus is superior to Moses. Now, the Exodus generation disobeyed Moses, and as a result, they jeopardized their inheritance, the rest, the entry into the promised land, and none of them entered the promised land, not even Moses. The only ones that entered were Caleb and Joshua because they were willing to trust God. 
fully and completely. And everybody else was prohibited from entering into the promised land. And, he, and what he is saying is if the consequences for that generation of believers was so severe because they disobeyed Moses, and Jesus is superior to Moses, what do you think the consequences are going to be in our spiritual life if we disobey Jesus and don't trust fully in him? These are going to be serious consequences. They're going to be much broader than just not being able to enter into the promised land. So that's the overall view. And so last time, so that we would have a a perspective, an overview, an understanding of Israel's rebellion, I went through a number of events just to show that this generation, the Exodus generation, just had this history of disbelieving God. They saw all these miracles. They saw, uh, they, they saw when Pharaoh pursued them that God parted the Red Sea in Exodus 14. And then when they went into the wilderness and they arrived at Merah where there were bitter waters, that Moses put, water, uh, put a tree into the water and they turned uh, sweet. And from there they went to uh, 12 palms at Elim and they didn't have food and, and God provided manna. And then they uh, went on to uh, Rephidim where there was no water and they complained again. But God told Moses to hit the rock and he did and water, fresh water came forth. And then when he's up getting to Lord Sinai, the people complain again. They want Aaron to build a golden calf, and so he builds a golden calf. And then in Numbers 11, they complain, and God sends discipline in the form of some sort of brush fire in Numbers 11. And then they were complaining about just eating manna, and he sent quail, and they gorged on the quail, and, and many of them got sick, and many died. And then there's the rebellion of Miriam and Aaron against Moses, and then the failure at Kadesh Barnea. Yet again and again and again, there's this failure to believe, and to and they had the potential. Uh, this generation had the potential to enter the promised land, and they had the potential to experience the full orb of God's blessing. What He promised was rest, and that term rest has tremendous significance and meaning. It's not just a simple word. We think of it that way, but this word is an extremely complex word. So they failed completely to experience the potential blessing that God had promised them, which is categorized under this term rest. Nevertheless, I pointed out last time that they were believers. Again and again and again, they believe in God. And it's the same words that are used in, in the Greek and the New Testament to express the conditions for salvation, pistuo ace. They believe God, they trust God. But because of their disbelief, they didn't lose their salvation, their destiny in heaven, but they did lose their inheritance. It was taken away from them. They did not enter the land. And that entry into the land was is defined in Psalm 95.11 that God swore in his wrath that they shall not enter my rest. That's the key phrase. My rest is the key phrase for being able to understand and inter properly interpret everything down to the end of chapter 4. So this is a term we have to spend a little time on. And it is not just a simple term. I ran across this quote in uh, an article I was reading on the subject. And Walter Kaiser wrote this at the time, he was, which was about 
40 years ago. He was, or 30 years ago, he was a professor up at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Now he's a president of Gordon-Conwell Seminary. He's pre-trib. He's a dispensationalist. And he wrote, quote, in 1933, Gerhard von Rott, now von Rott is a liberal Old Testament scholar, but he's a big name in Old Testament studies. And these guys may not be on the same page that we're on, but they do some good work in some areas. Gerhard von Rott aptly observed, quote, among the many benefits of redemption offered to man by Holy Scripture, that of rest has been almost overlooked in biblical theology. So here's this world-class, world-renowned theologian, Gerhard von Rotten, he says, this whole concept of rest has not been adequately and fully developed and explored in the history of biblical study. Kaiser goes on to say, 40 years later, 1973, 40 years have not substantially changed that assessment of the situation. In fact, except for the brief and conflicting opinions, notice that the brief means they barely talk about it, Conflicting, nobody agrees. In fact, except for the brief and conflicting opinions delivered in commentaries on Hebrews 3 and 4, only a few major articles in the journals, and you can count them on one hand, and fewer graduate theses have been devoted to the concept of God's rest in the last century. That means everybody's skipping over it because it's so complex. It is such a pregnant Concept. Now, that imagery means that it's just loaded with nuance and meaning, and it ties together about five or six major doctrines. And if you don't have, uh, I, I believe that if you just don't have a dispensational framework, you're just not going to be able to put things together to understand all of the nuances and implications and significance of this term for rest. And this is what Kaiser's pointing out. He concludes by saying, Most biblical theologies of the Old Testament and New Testament, biblical encyclopedias, theological word books, Feshriften, that's a theological uh, book written in honor of somebody's 50 years of scholarship, and systematic theologies are ominously silent on the topic. The question is why? The reason I introduced that is because I want you to get, get... an understanding of the fact that this is what seminary students and professors call a problem passage. It is a difficult concept to understand because of the uh, way the word is used throughout the Old Testament. You You can't come in, especially in Hebrews. I think you know this by now. You can't just come into Hebrews and say, hmm, rest. That that just means uh, trusting in God that there's a whole lot of meaning behind this term that that comes out of the Old Testament. And so if we're going to understand what the writer of Hebrews is saying to us, we have to have a little perspective from the Old, Old Testament. So I think the first thing we ought to do is just understand some of the key words that are used in this study. The first word I want to focus on is the Greek word that we find that translates two or three of the different Hebrew words. Now, that's an interesting concept because in Hebrew, usually it's the other way around. Usually in Hebrew, you have one word that then is translated by two or three different Greek words, Greek being a more precise language. 
But what we have in this case is just the opposite. You've got three different Greek words that are all translated by the same... Uh, you have three different Hebrew words that are all translated by the same Greek word. So how, how, how are we supposed to understand this? Well, the Greek word is katapausis. K-A-T-A-P-A-U-S-I-S. Now, you all can read that, but the reason that I always spell it out is so that people on the tape can understand what I've said. It's the act of resting or ceasing from labor. Now, we know that God doesn't need to rest because God doesn't tire out. God's omnipotent. He never exhausts his energy. But it's the idea of cessation from labor when it's applied to God as opposed to resting because he's tired. It's also called the place of rest, the place of dwelling or a fixed abode. And in some passage, this concept of rest has to do with the tabernacle, and this is God's resting place in the Holy of Holies. Now, what does that tell you? That tells you that it has some nuance, some idea about worship and serving God. So that's part of it. It just brings in all kinds of different different mixes. And it's used uh, in Acts... 749, you have the same word used that you have here in, in uh, Hebrews 3 and 4, but it's going to translate a different word out of Isaiah 66. One. We'll look at that in a minute. The other word that's used is a Greek word, or the second key word is nuach. Nuach, and this means to rest, to settle down, to be stable. Uh, it refers to a resting place uh, or a place of rest. And the, the noun form, menucha, which is used in a lot of the verses we're going to look at. Nuach, anybody think of whose name relates to Nuach? Noah. Yeah. He, you know, man would find rest, salvation in Noah. So it picks up this nuance of salvation. So, Nuach has the idea of an absence of movement, being settled in a permanent place. It's used to describe rest, the rest that comes after a complete victory in a military conquest, and it's used to refer to the rest of salvation. Okay, last word. Sabbat. Where do we get that? See, it's related to Sabbath. But there's... Sabbath means seven. Sabbat doesn't have a double B, so everybody argues over whether they're related. It means to cease, desist, rest, to put an end to labor or work, or to cease from doing something. That's the word that's used in Genesis 2 2 when, when God rests from the work of the six days of creation. Now, all of these words are translated by that same Greek word, katapausis, which indicates to me, at least, that. Gosh, all these different concepts of rest, even though the Hebrew uses different words to emphasize different dimensions of it, it's all the same rest. Now, I'm giving things away. See, the th- you know what they always say? Tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them. So that's where we're going to go with this, is that these are all related to the same rest. It has different dimensions, but it's all the same rest. And so we're going to talk about that. Now, that means we have to go to the next story about children. We don't want you all to get too... This is heavy stuff, so every now and then we have to take a little commercial break for the mind. A kindergarten teacher was observing her classroom of children while they were drawing. She would occasionally walk around to see each child's work. 
And as she got to one little girl who was working diligently, she asked, What are you drawing? The little girl said, I'm drawing God. The teacher said, Well, nobody knows what God looks like. And the girl said, Wait a minute. When I finish, they'll know. Okay, back to our heavy subject. See, we've got to have these little, little mental chewing gum every now and then or vacation just to focus. The, the key words all focus on cessation from labor. They indicate something to do with salvation. They indicate something to do with rest after military conflict. They indicate a uh, ceasing or desisting from labor or work and that idea is really going to come up when we get into the next when we get into the next chapter now let's look at a couple of other verses psalm 95:11 is the verse that's quoted in Hebrews 3:11 where God says or so I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest because the exodus generation refused to trust God because of their continuous disbelief, which culminated in that act of disbelief at Kadesh Barnea, God in his justice condemned their continuous disobedience, and he refused to let them enter my rest. Now, what does my rest refer to there in context? It refers to entering into the promised land. So the first meaning that we're going to see from, from the concept of my rest is that, that this relates to that historical fulfillment of entering into the promised land. The word used again in Isaiah 66, 1, where we read, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? What do you think that refers to? Where is the house that you will build me? Temple. Worship. Once again, we're back to this idea of the presence of God in worship. And where is the place of my rest? So here we have this term that just pervades the Old Testament where God talks about his rest. One is talking about a historical fulfillment of Canaan. One has to do with, with, with worship. And in Isaiah 66, it clearly has a future, future context and future orientation. So what in the world are we looking at here? Okay, let's break it down and try to go through several points to uh, understand the concept. First of all, as I've already said, the rest, it's at the heart of Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4, is God's rest. Understanding God's rest, therefore, is the key. It's the hermeneutical key to understanding the whole chapter. There are three rests in the Old Testament. Now, I've boiled this down to three rests in Actually, as a study of different views, there's been as many as nine different rests identified in this chapter. Now, that'll just drive you nuts. Nine different rests every time, every other verse, it's a different rest. That doesn't make sense without any, without any clue. So what, what's going on? Well, we can break it down and make it very simple. The first rest that is clear from this passage is God's cessation from his creation activity what we'll call the Sabbath rest this is the first category God ceases from his creation activity that's a key element Genesis 2.2 the second and this is Genesis 2.2 on the seventh day God ended his work so that's the idea God ended his work which he had done and he rested on the seventh day 
from all the work which he had done. Now, what's going on here? God's created perfect environment. A perfect environment. He's created man. He's placed man in the garden. Man is now in the garden. God is in a place of rest. He's not creating anymore so that man can enjoy the all-sufficient, abundant blessings that God's provided for him in that garden. So Adam and the woman are placed in the garden to enjoy what? God's rest. This is the first time we have this concept mentioned. And what happens? They blow it. They disobey God. She eats from the fruit, entices him, and the rest is shattered as a place where there's no battle, no warfare, that kind of thing. The rest is battle, and now we enter into the fall, and there hasn't been any peace since. And recovery of rest is related to what concept? Salvation. So rest has this salvation idea that's always hanging around the background of the use of the word. The next use that we have is rest that refers to the promised land. That when Israel enters into the promised land, they will have rest. They will enter into my rest. That's how it's used in Psalm 95.11. That's the immediate context of our Old Testament quote from Psalm 95 and how it's primarily used in, in Hebrews 3 and 4 is this, in this rest that they entered into. Now, what do you think of when you think of entering into the land? Well, where did they get the land? Remember, God promised Abraham the land. Oh, boy, we're back in the Abrahamic covenant again. God promised them the land. And the promise of the land is related to another key word we've often studied, and that is the concept of inheritance. This is their inheritance. Another word for inheritance in the Old Testament is possession. This is, going, this is their promised possession. So now we've got Abrahamic covenant, we've got promise, and we've got a possession. This is their inheritance. Now what happens to the Exodus generation is because of unbelief, they forfeit their inheritance but not their salvation. They don't possess the land. They don't enter the land. They don't enjoy its blessings. They're still saved with an eternal destiny in heaven, but they miss out on that uh, promise of inheritance. So we see right away that when we talk about rest, not only does it bring in ideas related to salvation, it brings in ideas related to the Abrahamic covenant and the land promise and inheritance and blessings. Boy, this can get complicated. This is, this is a loaded term. So this idea of the promised land rest relates to Israel entering into the land. But there's more to it than that. And that's the third way in which the word is used, and that is related to kingdom rest. Because you see what happened. Abraham is promised the land. Did Abraham ever own anything in the land? No, not just a gravesite, the cave of Machpelah where Sarah and Abraham are buried. He never owns anything. He never possesses it, Hebrews chapter 11. And then subsequent generation, the Exodus generation, they never enter into the land. And when the conquest generation under Joshua goes in, they fail to fully execute God's plan. 
And as a result, they don't ever conquer the entire land that God has promised them. And so it's never fulfilled. So we have promise, but no fulfillment. It's future. So not only does this concept of rest have, a, have something to do with salvation, but it has to do with a historic situation of entering the promised land. But it also has this future dimension way down the road that relates to the coming kingdom, the coming of the Messiah. So these are the three ideas. And now we have to ask ourselves, which of these is the main idea here in, in Hebrews? And how do these three ideas relate to each other? Well, just to make sure that we're on our toes, the writer of Hebrews slips another word in there for us to refer to rest in Hebrews 4, 9. And in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9, he says, There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. Now that means that this rest can't be the Canaan rest because it remains for the people of God. They didn't get it with whatever they did with the promised land and entering the promised land doesn't fulfill the promise because there remains today a promise indicating future fulfillment. A promise... For the people of God. But the word rest there is sabbatismos. Guess where that comes from? Shabbat. Sabbath. So these words are then used inter- interchangeably. Then we come to our fourth point. However, the writer of Hebrews interconnects these ideas. He pulls them all together. He's weaving together these, the, the ideas of God's rest at the Sabbath with the promised rest of the promised land plus the kingdom. All these ideas relate to one another. Okay, you got that so far. Anybody confused? Maybe it's not as fuzzy as I thought. Now, we're going to develop this a little more. The rest that we're talking about is foreshadowed in the promise of Abraham related to the land and to the inheritance I pointed out already. So Abraham's given this promise. Think about it this way. Here's Abraham, approximately 2000 B.C. He's given the promise. And then we have Moses in the Exodus in 1446, and then we have Joshua going into the land in 1406, and then way down the line, in 1011, David becomes the king. And probably about 1000... or about 990 B.C., we have the giving of the Davidic covenant. And so, point number five, the rest is thus foreshadowed in the promise of Abraham. It's related to the land and inheritance, but it's further developed in the seed promise to, to David. Now, you see you've got three elements in the Abrahamic covenant there. Land, seed, and blessing. So, the blessing comes when you're in the land, the land is the foundation, but to get there, you've got to go through the seed. That's going to be salvation. So it's developed in the seed promise to David. And in 2 Samuel 7, 1, 2 Samuel 7 is the giving of the Davidic covenant, we read in the first verse, Now it came to pass when the king, that's David, was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had, what? Given him rest from his enemies. And that's the verb nuach in the hiphil stem, which indicates an absence of 
adversity in relationship to military conflict. There's peace in the land. 2 Samuel 7.11 God says, Since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Okay, now think. Here's your timeline. Joshua are, are in, in Numbers 14, God says, You're not going to enter my rest. Now, way down the line, that's 1,400. 400 years later, he says to David, You have rest from your enemies. Okay, so we think that's fulfillment. But there's other passages that come into the mix. There's two other key passages. This is point six that we have to take into account when we're trying to understand rest. One is Deuteronomy 12.9. In Deuteronomy 12.9, Moses is speaking to the Israelites just before they go into the land. He's on the plains of Moab. He's getting ready to go, and, and he's getting ready to die. But they're going into the land. And he says to them in Deuteronomy 12, 9 and 10, For as yet you have not come to the rest. Because the rest is across the river Jordan when they conquer the land. You have not come to the rest and the inheritance which your Lord your God is giving you. So in Deuteronomy 12, 9 and 10, they don't have it yet. He says, But when you do cross over the Jordan and dwell in the land which your Lord your God is giving you to inherit. Notice how inheritance is tied to rest here. The, the land your Lord is giving you to inherit, He gives you rest from all your enemies round about so that you dwell in safety. Okay, in this verse, you, get, you connect land, inheritance, and rest. You don't have it yet. Ah, but in Joshua 21.44, after the conquest, we read, The Lord gave them rest all around according to all that He had sworn to their fathers, and not a man of all their enemies stood against them. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their hands. See, it's the context of warfare. In the Old Testament, the warfare is physical, and it's with the enemies of Israel. In the church age, the warfare is more spiritual, and it's against uh, thoughts. We're tearing down strongholds, and it is defined in terms of war against the three enemies of the Christian life, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're still involved in that. There's no rest in the spiritual life. So what I'm, the point I'm making here is you start off with this promise of rest. They're going to enter rest. Joshua says, we've got, God tells Joshua, you've got rest. Then again, he tells David, you've got rest. And not only that, he comes along and he says after David that uh, Solomon is a man of rest and what did I have that? Solomon is considered a man of rest and then Asa is also called a man of rest and then King Jehoshaphat is a man of rest Solomon is called a man of rest in 1 Chronicles 22.9 King Asa is called a man of rest in 2 Chronicles 14.5 and 6 and Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles 20 verse 30 God gives each of them rest. Rest, 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 rest. When do they get rest? It's all these partial rests that you get as you go through the Old Testament. A couple more points and we'll pull it together. But this rest clearly has a future dimension to it that's clear from the Old Testament. 
Isaiah 14, 3. It shall come to pass in the day the Lord gives you rest from your sorrow and from your fear and the hard bondage in which you were made to serve. This is talking about in the millennial kingdom, in the messianic kingdom. So all these other rests are merely tastes. They're foreshadowings of that future kingdom rest. So you see, God has a rest at the cessation of creation. Things get all messed up when Adam sins. There's going to be a promise of rest to Israel, to the Exodus generation, if potential, if they would enter the land and do what God says, but they screw it up so it never happens. Then there are partial rests from enemies through in, at the time of Joshua, the time of David, Solomon, Asa, Jehoshaphat, but it's not a full rest. There's still a promise of rest to God's people. So that takes the idea of, the, of God's sabbatical rest, connects it to the historical rest in the land, which was never complete, and points it ultimately through Psalm 95 to a future uh, kingdom rest. Psalm 95.11 is part of a series of psalms from Psalm 93 to Psalm 100 that are, the term I like to use, is enthronement psalms. These are psalms that all focus on praising God for the enthronement of Messiah. They're future-oriented. They look forward to the coming of that kingdom that the Messiah is going to be established on his throne. Now, there's a lot of different terms that are used for these Psalms, and I'm just going to read some of these to you because they, they, there's a theme in the, in the terminology. Some call them uh, apocalyptic psalms, others millennial anthems, songs of the millennium, group of uh, millennial psalms, second advent psalms, royal psalms. But they all have that idea of focusing on when the Messiah comes to rule as the son of David, which provides a king over the nation in the land. So I developed this little chart. This ties it all together. At the beginning, you have the Sabbath rest. God ceases from his labor. It's perfect environment. It's paradise on earth. Adam and the woman are enjoying all of God's perfect blessings. And then there's the fall. And everything crashes. And then as you go through the Old Testament, you get these series of partial rests from the enemies. But it's not complete until you have the second coming of Christ when he establishes the kingdom rest. So all these terms are part of one big picture. They just look at different dimensions of it but everything is focused on the future restoration of that which was lost in the fall. And so the future kingdom is a time when God is once again ruling on the earth. It's a time of perfect environment. Uh, the only people who have sin natures are those who are born during the time of the kingdom. So it's not, a, not as perfect an environment as you had uh, in, in the Garden of Eden, but it is just perfection sort of once removed. What this tells us is that the orientation of rest in 
Hebrews 3 and 4 is future. It's not talking about rest in the sense of trusting and relaxing in God's provision today. It's talking about the fact that there is a promise of a future rest, that kingdom rest, that inheritance possession that God has promised each one of us as believers. And the warning here is don't screw up like the Exodus generation did and disobey Moses and invalidate the whole thing and lose your inheritance, but be obedient, steadfast, obeying the Lord Jesus Christ, and then you will enter that rest, that is, realize those future blessings, privileges, and promises that God has made for those who hang in there in the Christian life. It's not talking about a loss of salvation. It's talking about fully realizing all the future benefits of your salvation. So this is why verse 12, the writer of Hebrews says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. That's the warning. Don't be like the Exodus generation, because that's what happened. Within them, there was this evil heart of unbelief. Now, what does that mean? Well, the word for evil is defined as a heart of unbelief in the context. An evil heart is described by an adjectival genitive of unbelief. What makes the heart evil is unbelief. You see, the same thing that happens with Saul back in in 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel, uh, Saul is told to go into battle against the Amalekites and to completely wipe out every man, woman, and nursing child. I mean, this this is strong stuff. He's supposed to wipe them out completely from the old people to the nursing babes He is to slaughter every single one of them, but not just all of them. He's supposed to kill their cattle. He's supposed to kill their sheep. He's supposed to kill all their livestock. Nothing that breathes is to be left alive. But Saul doesn't trust God. He doesn't believe. He goes out. He has an unbelieving heart, and he's accused in that passage when Samuel shows up and says, what's this bleeding I hear? What's the mooing I hear? And Saul, just like most religious people, oh, they're going to justify, use religion to justify their their actions, whatever they are. Says, well, I decided to save the best for God. And and Samuel says, well, God is more pleased with obedience than sacrifice, and rebellion is the sin of witchcraft. It's the same thing. Why does he say that rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft? Because what was Satan's original sin? It was rebellion, disobedience to God. So whenever you and I are disobedient and function in disbelief, we don't think of it this way, but according to uh, 1 Samuel 16 or 15, this is witchcraft. It is following in the same pattern as, as Satan. And this is why it's defined as evil. Unbelief is evil, the failure to trust God. Not for salvation... Because Saul was saved. He had a new heart back in 1 Samuel chapter 10. When Samuel comes back from the grave in that one-time only event when the witch of Endor calls him forth and he gives his final warning and 
and uh, a confrontation to Saul and says, well, you're going to die today, but you and your sons will be with me tomorrow. Excuse me, when you die tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me tomorrow. Well, they're not going to be with, uh, they're not going to be with uh, Samuel in, in torments. They're going to be with Samuel in paradise. So that indicates Saul was a believer. He was just a disobedient, rebellious believer. And God finally had to take him out under the, under the sin unto death. This is the concept of unbelief. It's, you have different categories of unbelief. You have unbelief at salvation, at gospel hearing. You have unbelief as you grow as a believer. And this can happen to anyone. And the result is that you depart from the living God. And the word there for depart is the Greek word aphistemi, which means to withdraw or to remove yourself, to forsake, to desert, or to cease from something. It's almost a play on words there, ceasing, and is, is also a connotation of rest. It's they, in unbelief, we depart, we remove ourselves from God. So the solution then is given in verse 13. But instead of... Instead of yielding to unbelief and disbelieving God and departing from the living God, verse 13, the writer says, but exhort one another daily. And the word there for exhort is the imperative of parakaleo, which means to come alongside, to encourage one another. And that's part of the function of the body of Christ, believer to believer. You have this whole series of commands in the scripture, reciprocal mandates to love one another, serve one another, pray for one another, and one of these is to exhort one another daily. Now, that doesn't mean that you see some Christian you don't know and you go up and you preach to them. That's not what the word exhort means. The word exhort has to do with knowledgeable application which means you know the person. You understand whatever it is that may be a problem, an adversity, a difficulty in their life, which is a test for them and is an opportunity that they may use to depart from the Lord. So it indicates that this is somebody that you have a relationship with, not just any believer. We all have circles of intimacy. We have five or six people who are fairly close to. Then we have another circle of intimacy where there's where there are acquaintances. There may be 10, 15, 20, who knows how many people that are acquaintances. We don't know them real well. We work with them. We go to church with them. We say, hi, hello, how are you? But we don't really know what's going on in their life. Well, you don't just butt into their life and start telling them everything because you really don't know them well enough to either understand what they're going through or to be able to give them biblical advice. But within that close circle of intimate friends, we do, and we encourage one another. We understand what others are going through. They have opened up their lives to us so that uh, we understand what the dynamics are in their life. They're our friends. They're our close friends. And so we are to encourage one another daily, not just every now and then, but this implies a consistent relationship with someone, to encourage one another daily while it is called today. What does that mean? Well, look back, go back to verse 7. Today, if you will hear His voice. There's a sense of immediacy, a priority here. You know, Don't let time go by. Today, this is urgent. We don't know. The Lord could come back tomorrow. We don't put things off next week. Who knows what will happen next week? 
So we're to exhort one another daily while it is called the day, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And sin is so deceitful. It's pleasurable. Every time I say that, I always remember an argument I got in when I was in high school. I was off at a Christian camp, and I had a counselor. One night we were having evening devotions, and he said, he said, is sin fun? That was our topic for discussion. I said, yeah, sin's a lot of fun. He said, no, it's not. I said, yeah, sin's a lot of fun. That's why it's deceitful. It's a lot of fun. And so we argued for a while. About three years later, he left his wife and entered into an eight-year affair with somebody. And, I always, and, and, and he dropped out of seminary to do all that. And I always wanted to go back to him and say, is sin fun? I saw him the other day. I didn't ask him that. But sin is fun. It's deceitful. It is, that is how we get distracted from our spiritual life is because there is an immediacy to the pleasure of sin. Sometimes don't you just love it when you get, just get angry at somebody? Or you just, you just let it go? I feel so good. There's a deceitfulness there or many other sins. Just to yield to that sinful pressure is pleasurable. And that is the deceitfulness of it. And it hinders, it frustrates, it stifles our, our spiritual growth. And if we stay in that state of carnality, which is what happened to the Exodus generation, then what happens is it, it shuts down or it, 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 it jeopardizes our future inheritance. And then in verse 14... The writer says, For we have become partakers of Christ. He takes us back to position of who we are. We have become partakers of Christ. Remember who you are as a believer. You've been identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. You have been completely transformed, regenerate, justified. You've entered into the family of God. You've been adopted into the family of God. You've been given these 40 things that God did for you at the instant of salvation. These are your realities. This is who you are now as a royal priest in the family of God. He says, you have become partakers of Christ. It is a perfect tense verb emphasizing the present reality of a past action. And then he says, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. What does he mean by that? Does he mean that, wait a minute, if you don't hold fast, you're going to lose it? No, what he means is if you don't hold fast, you're going to jeopardize the reward, not that you'll lose the salvation. It's the same way the Jews were promised the land through Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant... And their position in the Abrahamic covenant, it was not invalidated by their disbelief. Their realization of the blessings of their position were invalidated by their disbelief. That's what this if clause is getting at. Is if you don't live that life of belief and trust God and continue to grow, then what happens is you still have your positional realities, but you're going to forfeit the experiential blessing in time and eternity because you fail to hold fast to the end, that is to continue to grow. And then in verse 15, he says, while it is said today, three times in now from verse 7 to verse 15 and eight verses, we have today, today, today. Don't put it off till tomorrow. The spiritual 
issues that you have to deal with today. We always think that somehow, well, I'll get my spiritual life in order next year or next year. or I just don't have time to be reading my Bible every day right now. I mean, life's so hectic. I'll, uh, next year. That'll be a New Year's resolution. It's today. Don't harden your hearts in disbelief. Again, he says it. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And there's this sense of urgency and immediacy. And that takes us up to verse 16, where he starts to make the application back to the Exodus generation and builds the case for their failure to enter because of unbelief in verse 19, setting us up for chapter 4. So we'll come back and pick up at verse 16 next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word to be challenged by these things, to recognize that we have an eternal destiny and you have uh, rewards for us in eternity, you have promises for us in eternity, you have rewards. And Father, these can be jeopardized by uh, not trusting you, not growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ today. Father, we pray that we would uh, not take these things lightly, but while it is still called today, that we will continue to trust you and advance in our Christian life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.